KZSU Stanford, 9.1 FM. I'm Mark Molino. This is the Henry George Program. This is a show about housing, policy, politics, and much more. Today on the program, we have on Ace and NDI and Ollie Zoo, and we're discussing the Data for Progress paper, all about the progressive vision for housing. We also get a bit into the presidential candidates and what kind of housing policies they are stumping for. So let's uh, let's get into things. Welcome back, Ace. Hey, y'all. It's been a long time since I left you without a dope beat for you to step to. It's been way too long. And uh, welcome back, Ollie. Hey, what's up? So we are talking about a few things today. We're talking about, uh, this is an exciting, exciting paper. Uh, this is... The Data for Progress, uh, called a think tank, uh, Homes for All, the Progressive 2020 Agenda for Housing. Uh, this this made everyone excited because I think, uh, well, I'll ask you, why do you think this made everyone excited? Or did it not make people excited? It's the greatest housing proposal ever put forward by a lefty organization, as far as I know. It's really good. It does it's the most comprehensive one, the most detailed one that there is, and looks at the existing system and actually tries to think about what the transition is going to look like to have a fair housing system in the in the country um it's very yeah. it's very much of a yes to all of the above kind mm-hmm. of kind of thing it it has everything it has rancher protections it has zoning reform it has uh decommodifying housing including land value tax chatter that's what said the georgist <laughs> world of, of, of yeah. flame there's a there's yeah, a yeah, one paragraph that's like you know uh, uh san francisco economist henry george yeah <laughs> the lbt shout out was very crucial it's you will know necessary George's Twitter is becoming a powerful force that every candidate needs uh, to, uh, to what's, get. What's your position on on land rants? <laughs> that needs to be a debate. Absolutely, oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, so let's maybe we'll talk about like section by section. Uh, there are four sections here. Uh, we can do it by what it calls it. Part one: uh, end racist exclusionary zoning. And that's a kind of bold way to frame it, which is, I think, completely fair. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, zoning is class segregation, but more than that, zoning is very explicitly race segregation. Yeah, and I think it like what it does really well is instead of just saying we need to legalize housing, it says that actually there has been a history here of trying to use uh, zoning essentially as a response to you know the Fair Housing Act, right? Like using zoning as a way to you know keep out the poor's, you know, and keep out the browns, keep out the blacks, keep out keep out the Chinese. And the Fair Housing um, Act has nothing to say about it. It's like. Well, no, no, that's the thing, right? Yeah. The idea is there. The Fair Housing Act main main idea is discrimination in transactions, right? Yeah, discrimination in house buying, house renting, you know, house building. It doesn't say anything about discrimination in structural uh, patterns. Structural patterns, right? It can't like technically, supposedly, what's racist about a single family um, overlay, right? Technically, it just right? be people like just people like houses. You know, this is just this kind of neighborhood. You know, we yeah. just like houses. Every person deserves a lawn. Mm-hmm. And technically, can't. you know, they're not saying black people can't buy the houses. They're 
just well, hold on. happens that way. That I, you're, you're saying black people can't buy houses? That's pretty racist, man. <laughs> See, come on, man. <laughs> what are you saying? Black people are poor; they can't afford the houses here. If you know, if you're pushing back against single-family homes, you're disproportionately hurting low income and minority homeowners you know yeah this yeah is- i mean that's the that's the main thing right and also the other thing too right is that it creates a different um sort of uh class divide than there used to be pre um uh pre-fair housing act right i mean i think the okay let's just look at the history of multifamily housing specifically um a lot of families white families used to live in apartment complexes right um in, in, in city cores in the city cores or in, inner suburbs right and you know the quote-unquote luxury apartments of the past were full of fairly well-off uh rich white families who wanted to live with a doorman and you know, beautiful, you know, ornate halls and buildings. If you go to and any city in the Midwest or on the East Coast, and that's upper see class. Them, you you like middle class. It it was a very normal thing to it, to just live in an apartment. Absolutely right. I uh, mean, families, right? People yeah. with children, and they would send them to the you know neighborhood school. Um, you know, post post uh, World War Two with the advent of the GI Bill, um, with the creation, or sorry, not the creation, but the expansion of of, of the uh, mandate of Freddie Mac and, and, and Fannie Mae, um, coupled with the Fair Housing Act and the fact that integration was such a um, process that took you know up to 20 years. Coupled with blockbusting. Coupled with blockbusting um, meant that, you know, a nice white family who had the means would just de- decamp out to some single family house in the suburbs, right? Like that, and then so then it became a racialized class of people: the apartment renters, who are you know some racialized brownness and some uh, racialized poverty and crime association with it, and then there is another class of again racialized white homeowners who live in houses and are nice, safe people with children who send their who send their kids to nice, you know, good schools. Yeah. When you talk about like what is like the kind of liberal idea of a fair housing act is you turn it on and then suddenly these segregated blocks, suddenly you get the right proportions of everybody lives there and it's just a happy family. And this paper puts up the stat that 90 percent of all, uh, I guess, uh, neighborhoods are segregated. By yeah, some, and, like, and I think that if you look around any city, look in your own backyard, it's you are lying to yourself if you think that <laughs> there is that not family zoning is not an absolutely racial exclusion, uh, t- a, a racial exclusion tool. Yeah, right? yeah. I, I really like that they they make the really strong claim that it's it is literally like a causal relationship. Yeah, and it's funny because like, I mean, I can see why this would be an open debate. Like, uh, you know, like, um linking zoning with racism um but for people who studied this as a historical matter it's not a debate and if you ask any of the reactionary like lumpen homeowner like <laughs> group uh people who like you know are very very committed to keeping their neighborhoods you know uniformly single family homes those people have no they have no question about that either yeah they understand like this is not you know it's not like as if oh they somehow have no idea why their single family overlay neighborhoods are the way that they are like they know the point is to keep out the poor right yeah and i think the paper also i think to perk up george's ear some more links it 
definitively to land values. Oh, yeah, that was really interesting. It's not like a single-family house is inherently racist. It's the fact that what does everybody want? Everybody wants access to high-opportunity, high-land-value areas, Mm -hmm. and when you make them, you know, uh, uh, maximum parcel sizes or minimum parcel sizes, if you make it so it's only single-family zones, yes, it obviously allocates the best stuff to the upper class, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, it's like it's and the amount the amount of consumption of land here, right, is really something that um, the one of the people who who wrote this, uh, Henry Kramer, um, on Twitter, really really um, sort of uh, uh, puts forward, which is that in many cases he'll put two pictures of essentially the same house, except one of them has four apartments in it or three apartments in it, and the other one is a single family house, and he talks about how it's the exact same size lot. Yeah. Except that one family gets to overconsume um, uh, housing and gets to overconsume land versus another house where four families are able to enjoy this open space and this backyard and this front yard, you know? Yeah. Henry Kramer, by the way, uh, a great guy to follow on Twitter. He is one of the, uh, I think, most prominent Twitter activists in Portland. Uh, and I think he's part <laughs> of the thing. And I think he's one of the main fusionists, uh, you know. Of, t- of tenant well, voters' the, rights? Yeah, basically, I think he's, you know, Henry Kramer, Lisa Lowe, Lowe, is that her name in, um, oh, in, in Seattle? Seattle? The two of them, I'm trying to think. Oh, Laura of, Lowe. Oh, Laura Lowe, sorry. Uh, Laura Lowe, and I think there's a couple more. I think Alex Baca is also in that in that tribe of like the fusionists, right? Uh, Daniel K. Henry, uh, Henry, I think, in Chicago, too. Basically, it's people who, you know, saw the problem of exclusionary zoning, um, understand the history, the racial history of this problem, right? But also understand that the solution isn't simply to um, do away with the exclusionary zoning. That there need to be, there needs to be like a program of reparations, essentially, um, to help undo some of that history. And a lot of that comes from like straight up investment and assistance. Um, for people who have had to deal with the impact of this exclusionary zoning regime, fusionists is, is that something people are saying? Fusionists? Well, I'm I'm bringing it up because I've been yeah. following this stupid like conservative Twitter fight between the post liberals and the like traditional classical liberals <laughs> <laughs> who have decided to to end the like classic conservative fusion uh, mm. of social conservatives and business conservatives. So. Great. I mean, I feel like I would say there's the Murbys and the non-Murbys. Oh. <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you hate, if you want zoning reform, but you just want to kind of tweak it on the margin, mm-hmm. uh, but you don't actually care about equity, you don't care about justice and moral, you know, it's like... I, I mean, the Murbys, the problem with the Murbys is that, you know, they'll they'll hide themselves, you know, they'll hide themselves within the equity and, like, the justice community and stuff, and they'll say, like, oh, have you read The Color of Law? You know, like, that's the <laughs> yeah, problem. Yeah, yeah. That's the but problem if you put a Murbys. real rental protection thing, it's like, oh, wait, this, well, you this know, is kind of gross to me. You know, this is going to distort the market. <laughs> like, I don't know if this is the best thing. Like, the, that's the thing with the Murbys. They're yeah. like, well, have you read, you know, some whatever study by some civil rights professor or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. But then the moment you're like, hey, we need to raise some some taxes so we can build some affordable housing. And all of a sudden it's like, well, I don't know if this tax is broad enough. You know, I don't feel like it targets the right people. You know, <laughs> there's this, this weird thing like, you know, renter protections must be perfect. <laughs> but like, yeah, just everything else has a lower bar of how perfect it is. Everything's going to be flawed. Mm-hmm. And I think we need the best renter protections we can have. 
<laughs> so. yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think my hope is, my hope is, right, is that like this part one, this ending of exclusionary zoning, uh, we'll talk about what it's being coupled with. But oh, yeah. quite honestly, I think people live better lives in quadplexes and duplexes and triplexes. I think they live more connected lives with humans and they have, they, they're more sociable. I think single family zoning, and I've talked about this, uh, single family houses, I've talked about this, I think, on a previous uh, podcast, right? Yeah. Um, creates a like mindset that rots the brain right (laughs) it creates this like just absolute insanity i think it's like one of the biggest contributors to like libertarianism that there is out there absolutely absolutely i mean i i I grew up in a a single family neighborhood and uh had that libertarian phase in high school and I, i really feel like just being isolated from just different types of people is just like it, it's just um yeah it totally makes you very vulnerable to that yeah and you're just like it. oh it's my lawn and my house and my castle and yeah. my fence and i think it just creates i'm this, the lord like, of this, this absolute yeah. mindset of like you know and too much matters. individualism propertarianism <laughs> i think it matters too like what like what you're close to because it's not all or nothing like my my suburb was kind of yeah, it was like a 1910s suburb, and like uh, across the block was an apartment building uh, where my friend lived, who was very low income. He actually left the neighborhood, and it was bad. But I think it was a good neighborhood, and bring home a lot of people who lived in this kind of house. This house is a duplex. This mm-hmm. house is, you know, and I think that most by area, most places you drop into a suburb, it's going to be nothing but single family homes for as like far as for, about, yeah, yeah as far as the eye can see yeah like i was in i was in alameda actually today and you can just see that there was like a 20-year period when they allowed like duplexes and small tiny apartment complexes because there are some streets in alameda where you know if there are 20 houses on the street you know maybe 10 of them will be single family houses and then the other 10 are going to be some multiple of housing units and the neighborhood is obviously completely fine it's alameda california for goodness sake right um but you could also tell that like there is a moment you know i'm going to time it at let's say the mid 80s yeah. when they just decided to like clamp down on the apartment complexes and now all that happens is that the single family homes get more and more and more expensive in this area where you had this like great diversity of housing options you know do you hear this is a branding equitable zoning do you hear people say this before this paper because i don't know if i've heard it much uh so there's it's like a thing that's happening a lot on on the lefty um like lefty housing policy world yeah Uh, basically the idea is that well exclusionary zoning is bad but that doesn't mean you just do away with zoning because zoning in a lot of ways is a tool to be able to shape what a community could look like now of course that could be used in terrible horrible ways but it could also be used progressively right um or equitably and so the idea being could you zone for affordability could you zone for accessibility could you zone for uh, child-friendly age-friendly neighborhoods could you zone for things like wider sidewalks could you zone for things like i don't know transit lanes bike lanes so it's also pushing back for the affordable housing as an overlay in a certain area yeah basically the reverse right you're instead of instead of like having um 
uh, exclusionary zoning, you have inclusive zoning. And the opposite of exclusionary zoning is not just libertarian anarchy. Yeah, it's not just no <laughs> zoning. It's the idea that like you can use the zoning code in actual positive ways. Yeah. Now, of course, you know, Murbys and libertarian crazies are going to be like, it's impossible. But like, no, for real, though, like there have been some really, really great experiments out there. Basically greening zoning. I'm always skeptical when you give power to the government that it won't serve the powerful. I think that planning tends to be corrupted towards people's, you know, uh, private interests. So I think it's always, there is something to be said about planning. Sometimes we need more chaos and less planning, but I think that when we have the political energy to fix things, we definitely need equitable planning. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. I, so, yeah. but, I, I mean, planning also hasn't been scrutinized the way that I feel like it has been lately. <laughs> Like, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So. And I, I wonder if the planning the planning profession is ever going to go through what, like, you know, I don't know, uh, medicine and, like, anthropology went, had to go through where they had to, like, actually look at all of the, like, horrible, terrible things they've done. That's the <laughs> Oh, my God. Yeah, <laughs> and that's... actually have, like, a come to, you know, that uh, is the best come thing... to Moses moment yeah. or something. You the know? planning professions are the most thin-skinned people on Twitter. If you say anything about, like, you're actually behind a lot of regressive things that hurt people that are like, how dare you say the planners aren't the most, <laughs> we have the biggest hearts in the world. And we, yeah, yeah. how dare you hurt our feelings like that? And like, yeah. they're just like, it's like, boy, can you just like actually do stuff that's better instead of just yeah. uh, tone policing us? <laughs> uh, part two, enough about zoning, <laughs> social housing, uh, social housing. Everybody loves it. This actually lays out some goals uh, and the goals would be seven to 10 uh, million units of social publicly owned housing in addition to 3.5 million units through our current quote unquote affordable housing producing system Litech. And and what uh time frame would that be over? Uh yeah, what what did it say? It said I uh, thought it was 10 years. Yeah, yeah I think okay. 10 years. So you like know, which is an amazing pace. I mean, this, this is This is like, like Sweden in yeah, the 60s. Yeah, this would be this would be Huge. Now, mind you, obviously, we're a population of 330 million people, so an additional 10 million houses isn't exactly. It's like, not as big as Sweden. <laughs> yeah, that, remember, remember, we like look, looked this up. The ratio, yeah, of how many, like it was one million houses for a population oh, of insane. eight million. It oh was yeah, crazy. It's insane. Um, but uh, no, this would be. I think this is like an, an, an a beautiful, beautiful thing um, that that they've put together here. So number one, they expand the existing system. Now. Um, um, Litech, which I, you've had an, you said you had an, an episode about this in the past. Yeah, so I, I, to, like, I, I go over it. Yeah, and exactly. Right? We talked about in the past. I mean, people who work within the system. We had uh, Paul Leone, uh, who's an affordable housing developer, or was working for MidPen at the time. It is how we make affordable housing happen to the large mm-hmm. extent. So, in a lot of ways, it's like you want to work within the system but boy mm-hmm. the system's pretty convoluted it's convoluted it's, it's bad it's, it expires yes yeah. it's it's not counter cyclical uh counter cyclical yeah it's dependent on the whims of like the tax code dependent on the whims of investors and the worst thing is that there's always this constant uh renewal that you have to do every 15 to 30 years which creates these like massive cliffs and 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 a uh, sense of precarity and the affordability however it's the system we have we if we can <laughs> i mean it's, it's really hard <laughs> Hard to, to, to 
to find what is the worst thing about Litech, I think. It's like the yes. rent-to-own system, but for like affordable housing. Like yeah, the, exactly. Like the banks own it, and we have to continually buy back the, the stock yeah. we have. It's yeah. like, this is, and it's built like, just as of here, like, at the very least, 30 years, it's built 3 million homes, mm-hmm. you know? It's bad. Like, it's <laughs> actually yeah. bad. In every metric, it's just like, it's it enriches the banks while not doing nearly enough, and just being just this entirely crazy uh, Rube Goldberg yeah, issue. Yeah, like they, you know, I mean, I don't know who snuck it snuck it in in 1986 or whatever into the, the tax reform bill from that year, but goodness freaking gracious, man, are we still living with the, I mean, I guess they wanted to defund HUD, so that, that'll that that'll work. Um, but yeah, so anyway, there's a pretty significant expansion of the white tax system, and honestly, it's probably the part that is the quote-unquote most, like, passable thing thing that could potentially like actually happen in a in a democratic administration coming up next but i really want to talk about the social housing publicly yeah. owned mm-hmm. housing program <laughs> and plan yeah because it is beautiful so i think a lot of it actually seems to be um taken from um the social housing in the united states paper by um, ryan cooper and, and peter gowan yeah mm-hmm. and it talks about what what has always been i think an obvious question right which is that why does doesn't the government just build housing at cost and have the rents match the like match the cost of the construction, right? And obviously that will vary by area. And of course, then most people when they think about it, they're like, "Oh, you're gonna want to build them in San Francisco or in New York City? Isn't it gonna be so so expensive?" But the idea is that there would be cross subsidization within the buildings because some of them will be quote unquote market rate, some of them will be moderate. Uh, at um, moderate income housing, and yeah. uh, many of them will be at ELI or VLI. But the bulk of the, <coughs> sorry, at ELI low, is yeah, yeah. The bulk of the extremely low income and uh, very low income housing would actually be uh, produced by the light tech housing and by um, a s- specific separate. Uh, 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 system that is not just like social housing Uh, but it does like these two other things that I think are like so beautiful and specific that like when I read it I was like these people they've painted the back of the fence like they're not you know what I mean like they've really really understood the things that are in the way of building like affordable permanent social housing so one is they wanted to do away with the fair cloth amendment, yeah. um, which is basically like at the height of neoliberalism in the 90s, they passed essentially a ban on new public housing, right? It said that no federal funds could be used to build any new um, public housing, yeah. which is like just a horrible, evil thing, which has let existing public housing fall into decay. And then, Which it already was in at that point. Exactly. And then around the same time, I think it was a few years before, a program called Hope 6 passed. And Hope 6 was basically like the teardown, um, you know, the big, massive public housing towers, and then do more scattered site. Um, if you watch Show Me a Hero, you recognize a little bit of this. And try to have like more, you know, better public housing essentially through 
um, renovation, renewal of a lot of these places. That got transitioned into a program called the RAD program, which is the Rental uh, Assistance Demonstration Program. Basically, what happens is that a lot of public housing was built in very low densities. And so because it got built in like a lot of hot areas sometimes, the public housing agencies could partner with market rate developers so that 50% or more of the development could be redeveloped as market rate housing and that their units, the public housing units, would get replaced, but not on a one-to-one basis. So you're allowed to have net loss of units um, on the existing public housing units. Of course, that would mean a pretty massive displacement of the existing public housing residents. Yeah. Now, they're supposed to all be able to come back, but once you're moved, you moved, right? And so- <laughs> and, the, and we're doing nothing to build, yeah. it's actually illegal to build more stock. Exactly. And so, um, in some cases, like of a project I heard about in, in Seattle, only 20% only twenty of the residents actually came back to the existing new housing. The uh, number of people who returned to the housing units were no longer essentially not owners but long-term renters of their apartments they were now given like a section 8 um, a section 8 voucher which meant that they could move more um, uh, they were more likely to move out of the public housing units and then it also brought in like a completely new class of quote-unquote public housing uh, resident because the um, vetting process has increased so much over the years that the new residents are completely different from the older residents who are living in public housing. And, like the fact that they included that as part of their social housing program yeah. just makes me think like the level of depth and thinking on this program is just like, oh my God, you know? <laughs> I mean, yeah, social housing is not just saying we should do a Red Vienna. You actually have to. <laughs> And through well, yeah. What do we do with our existing systems? How do we reform? Yeah, it's it's yeah. yeah. Like I mean, I think this goes back to the exclusionary uh, zoning thing, and I'm I'm sorry if I'm um, like kind of want to hit this point. Yeah, which is that like you can't just fix the problem on a superficial level. That wrongs were done. Right. Mm-hmm. Like something wrong happened here. Right. Something was broken. Right. And I think the Jewish faith is the Tikka Malam. Right. Broken parts here. Right. And that they have to be repaired and reparations have to be made in order to fix them. And like this actually kind of gets at something, which is that public housing was sabotaged. <laughs> right. It was mm-hmm. disinvested from. It was essentially, you know, they, they built tofu houses uh, for people to live in. Right. Fire traps. And like there needs to be an acknowledgement of that and that they're talking about doing away with the Fair Cloth Amendment. They're doing away with the RAD program is an acknowledgement of the fact that something went wrong, you know. And, and I just want to point out. So you said uh, when they're like, um basically displacing uh, public housing residents and rebuilding, they could not uh, build enough units to uh, one-to-one because, uh, and that would be because of uh, rezonings? Um, Sometimes it's rezonings, but sometimes they just don't have to and don't feel like it. Okay. So there's there's just no net loss protection, so why not make more money, I guess? Yeah, I mean, part of it is that, you know, the project that I I toured in Seattle – um, it was with Paul Allen's company, the, one of the CEO co- co-founders of, of Microsoft, and uh, they were doing a nearly one-to-one. I think they're doing eighty percent, eighty percent rebuilding of the of the public housing units, um, and they thought that that was a really good 
good uh, uh, rate. Uh-huh. But they told me that the reason why they couldn't do one to one wasn't actually them. It was the affordable housing developer who was like, this is the type of housing that we build. Um, and I think it was like, you know, there were some limits on the type of construction. And so that that was it. That's just like developers just liking to do what they are. Yeah, I mean, it's like one of those things where it's like, you know, you put out an RFP, I'm sure, for a affordable housing developer to come in and do a project. And the affordable housing developer is like, this is the kind of housing I build. And uh, they're like, well, that's not as many units as we had, but a bird in the hands better than two in a field. So here we go. <laughs> this is a this is a big question of, I mean, you get big scale. What is the point of social housing? You know, is mm-hmm. it is it supposed to be to create some sort of extremely precarious like safety net for people on the margins? Is it supposed to be like public schools? Something which is just mm-hmm. saying that some things are best not done through the private market and actually we can outperform it by giving all sorts of public of of social housing yeah. at all income levels. And I think that we have definitely got to the idea that one, we said, no, public housing is for the extremely poor because they need it the most and normal people should live in normal houses, obviously. And then it gets to the point of saying this isn't working because the public doesn't do as good as the private. So instead, let's give vouchers and have private, uh, you know, creation. Landlords, yeah. Yeah, private landlords and the privatization of landlords coupled with uh, with public voucher programs is going to be more efficient. And just across the board, objectively none of these things are true mm-hmm. they have been a massive sink insofar as like this section 8 program is enriching landlords while giving poor outcomes uh and our public housing program was just never really set up to be maintained and serve mm-hmm. as a sustainable affordable program that actually has i think the problems of the private housing market especially where there's high land values <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Uh, so that is section two. It's exciting. Uh, social housing. Uh, so and, and as you said, yeah, it is kind of incorporating a large part of the uh, Cooper Gowan paper in a way that I think, boy, you know, are we going to have, you know, this be part of the mainstream of saying, don't fear, you know, the the towers in Chicago. That mm-hmm. isn't what public housing is. We if we do I mean, it, I still want towers. But at but least we don't want specifically the not the Chicago. Yeah, we yeah. don't want segregated towers <laughs> yeah. that we don't maintain we don't that we let Cabrini fall Green. into. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We're not. Yeah, we don't want segregated, disinvested from towers where you know eighty percent of the residents don't have employment. Yes, that yes. would be. <laughs> yeah. That would be accurate. So uh, this is like going from the financing model that, uh, yeah, more toward like. I mean, getting re- it's getting realer, and and yeah. I feel like it's getting more um, solidified. It's, well, I mean, what's crazy? I mean, if you don't mind, like me saying this real quickly, it's just the RAD program is supposed to be that. Like in a sense, like the the this is the Obama administration's version of that, right? They were yeah. like, we want a mixed income community. Mm-hmm. And when did that start? Uh, 2015, 2014, 2015. Uh-huh. But Hope Six has been around since I think the early nineties, like uh, ninety four or something like that. Has it been like around enough to actually show whether it's doing good? Or? I mean, basically, it depends on what you mean by good. And this is, you know, I've talked about this multiple times, but I guess this is the time for me to tell my little neoliberalism story again. You know what I mean? Um, so again, if there's a bunch of people drowning, neoliberalism is the driftwood that you use to try and save as many people as you can, right? Yeah. And then that is always good. And if you can save people with a driftwood, by all means, go ahead and save the people with the driftwood. However, you know, as people who believe in a more transformative system, 
there needs to be a full-on rescue boat mission here for people who are drowning, right? And we have the capability to do it. Yeah, and so the RAD program is driftwood, basically. Yeah. It, Even though the outcome was technically, right, technically people were able to have affordable housing, technically there was uh, a mixed-income community. However, the means through which it happened meant that there was no disruption of the existing uh, privatized or privatization system in the public housing or the, in the housing uh, world, right? In one sense, they went away from having a guaranteed home to having a Section 8 voucher that would need to be funded and renewed and so on and so on. Um, and then two, they went from having a completely publicly owned project to being a partially publicly owned project with a private developer owning a portion affordable housing developers owning the other, right? That's the thing, right? Neoliberalism, it looks the same, yeah. but it's privatized. And I think that's, that's, that is, I think, the biggest, I think, personal, you know, just the, the Obama experience is kind of like, oh, yeah, we have a smart guy who knows how to make the technocratic changes, but if you just tweak at the margins, you're never going to create good s- systems yeah. that actually fix things. You're you, just could, go- you could have the mixed-income community, right? Yeah. Uh, it would just be publicly funded, and publicly owned, right? You'd have the same outcome, but how it wouldn't be a privatized system, right? And it wouldn't be, you know, uh, subject to the vagaries of some Microsoft billionaire. You know? It's just funny because, yeah. like, privatization, it became originally like, let's look at reasons why privatization offers better outcomes than centralized state allocation. And then it becomes kind of a goal in itself. Privatization is better because privatization is better. And it's just, it's, it's insane. Well, it assumes austerity. And I, I, I want to be fair, I think, to the neolibs. I mean, okay, this is definitely oh. <laughs> famous last words right there. But, <laughs> you know, like one thing that I think neoliberalism comes from, and of course there's, there's some sense in which the, uh, the cause is also, the, is also because of neoliberalism. Uh, and the effect is the fact that neoliberalism presents an option which is austerity right like they starve the beast first right and then offer this privatized food right um but without the starving of the beast there wouldn't be the need for all these neoliberal solutions right to try to draw in private capital into the system and it's funny how you starve the beast when the beast are means-tested programs for for people who aren't the neoliberal defenders you don't starve the beast for social security for medicare for public libraries for public schools well i mean that those programs because they're universal create a constituency that is by definition, universal, right? Yeah. And but even then, they try. I mean, they do everything they can. To, <laughs> yeah, it's true. Know, it's they true. try to privatize the schools. Yeah, they try yeah, to yeah. privatize the transit. Yeah, they so, try to privatize the security. The I mean, they've they've they were successful at privatizing retirement uh, for the private sector. Work right. Um, but you know, they're 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 working on the unions. You know, so so <laughs> like in the housing space, I feel like uh, you know technocrats develop expertise. That's shaped by um, austerity. So, like earlier, we were talking about like um, uh, nonprofits who are in the ho- who are serving homeless folks are going to try to like. Uh, I mean, they're 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 advocating for permanent supportive housing, which is you know the most cost effective and humane thing you can do for most homeless people. But they're also going to fight against you know half measures. Because they're operating in this like assumption that there is you know not enough to go around. Like if if you're if austerity is just 
the world that you're living in, um, you're going to have to be fighting against other types of you know, solutions. Yeah, yeah. Every dollar that you spend on a bridge home community or a tiny home community is a dollar you could have spent on a permanent supportive housing unit. Right. And I'm sure that's exactly how they think about it. And like they're fighting over the scraps, you know. So uh, moving on to the next part of this thing, we have part three, provide immediate relief to renters. Uh, so what are, what are the most important things to take away from here? Because I think we want to maybe move through the last two things a bit quicker and move to presidents. So here are the good things. Um, that I think are important, right? So there is the idea that they would create a kind of carrot system for jurisdictions that pass uh, tenant protections, uh, either rent control, rent civilization, uh, just ca- uh, just cause eviction protections, tenant and, right to legal counsel. And we talk a lot about like what the situation is in California when you're on talking about CASA. Mm-hmm. It's worth saying most of the country is significantly worse than California. Oh yeah, I mean like most, I think I think the majority of the states in this country, rent control is illegal, right? Yeah. Like, They've banned rent control, which is actually one of the things that, like, one of the craziest, craziest thing that we always end up fighting over in California uh, is about the impact of rent control, right? But, like, there are so many, so many examples of the impact of not rent control (laughs) and, like, what that actually does to people, like, poor working class people in places like Denver and Chicago and Detroit, you know? Yeah. And the first thing starts, it talks about Section 8, say, like, at the very least, you need rent control for Section 8, because when you don't, then the government is just basically... So this like, is the part This is the part that I think was... I mean, I think this is one of the weakest parts of the entire paper. I hate what, to say it. I love the entire paper, but this part, I was like, I don't know about this. Well, it, it, I think it's, it, it's looking at the immediate term for mm-hmm. something which is just an obvious, yeah. just complete failure. Yeah. So the thing about the Section 8 system, um, and I guess like, most people who listen to this program will be pretty familiar with it, but basically it's a voucher. It's a voucher that you get handed supposedly it gives uh, enough money to pay for market uh, fair market rent in an area usually a city or county what happens is that there's a massive backlog uh, uh, for that list of section 8 voucher holders right uh, by definition these folks are very very low income usually I think the the threshold is 130 percent or 135 percent of the poverty line right but they're given a voucher that supposedly is able to pay for you know the going rate for a one bedroom two bedroom three bedroom apartment or house in an area if you're a landlord and you're thinking to yourself okay I'm gonna you know take on a section 8 voucher holder well they're gonna be able to pay the rent the government will pay will pay me for the rent uh, I have to jump through some hoops and some massive kind of like um, uh, uh, qualifications and inspections and all of this other stuff so it's gonna be a little more trouble than just getting a, a regular tenant but at least I'll get this like kind of stable rental income what kind of landlord do you think that attracts I think or incentivizes? It, it attracts people who really care <laughs> it, attracts, it attracts the do-gooders and people who just, they don't care about money. You know, they just want to do the right thing. Yeah. So even though the paper talks about these like sort of um, uh, ways to rein in the bad actors in the Section 8 system, the bad landlords who are basically renting crap board, you know, fire trap housing to Section 8 voucher holders, and it would ban discrimination against Section 8 voucher holders, I think the reality of the world is that most likely a person who's renting to Section 8 voucher holders is not going to be the kind of landlord that most people would prefer, right? And so I think there would need to be a stronger approach to um, who qualifies to be a Section 8 landlord or, in the reverse, Section 8 should just be a straight-up cash support 
um, that doesn't require any kind of um, qualifications. It should look like food stamps. Yeah. You know what I mean? It should just be cash support, right? You can only pay rent with the money, but it, the landlord shouldn't have to know that you're that you're on Section 8. You should just have your rent income show up in your bank account and then you can pay your rent with it. And imagine and if you had a universe. this even scales up to a universal rent income thing, which mm-hmm. is some people talk about in the abstract, like a basic income. You have universal food stamps, universal rent. Oh. You'd have to make sure that rents aren't bid up. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, and so and we're in Silicon Valley. There's probably a tech solution to this too, right? Where it's like, here's someone who is certified basically that they're going to pay the rent and it, all tenants have to use the same system for rent paying or something like that. And that allows for a landlord to have that security that like whoever this tenant it is whether or not they make their money from straight income or from 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 governmental cash support they can pay the rent but uh, right now i think i think it um it assumes a level of like i think um landlord goodness that i just don't personally assume so this this also talks about uh, just you know something we've talked about much in the show in the past with Casa locally, just what is the package render protections you want, and then also at the federal level, how do you do it? It's not just passing it. And this talks about carrots and sticks. Carrots would be uh, I keep on saying CB, uh, CGBB uh, CDBG CDBG. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's a, a yeah yeah that's one. I mean, kind of frustrating thing is like. The way that they approach zoning reform and um, you know incentivizing uh, tenant protection reform and rent, rent control things like that, it's all through incentivizing like um, like municipalities or, or counties with the CDBG funding and stuff like that. Well, it's federalism. I mean, you know? I think it, hopefully yeah. that'll work in many cases. I think some places, especially in like suburbs of Chicago, or whatever. In many cases, in places like the suburbs of Chicago, I'm sure it'll it'll work. And places like that are like just dead end or crazy people like Cupertino. I don't know. It, it like, says here, like, Cupertino's ready to go bankrupt <laughs> over one housing project. Oh, yeah. So, I don't Absolutely. know. <laughs> yeah, it says here, it's like, you know, even in time, even wealthier, more exclusive enclaves may be open to things. It's like, I mean, I think you have to wait a long while. Although you see, like, it matters where it is. If you're in the heart of Silicon Valley, you're going to wait a long while. If you're talking about Moraga, Moraga went bankrupt in the East Bay not too long ago. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, they had, like, a couple of disasters or whatever and then, like, yeah. completely drained their, their bank account. I mean, um, one part of this policy, though, is pretty awesome, is the... Uh, withholding the mortgage interest tax that's deduction yeah. <laughs> from With, states without renter protection. Yeah, withhold. That's amazing. That's funny. That's yeah. great. And then also look about uh, restrict highway funding. If you don't, mm-hmm. if you don't do right things for renters, you can't sprawl forever, or at least the feds won't pay for it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I suppose like we're like carrot and sticks and stuff. I suppose the sticks could be real sticks here, right? Like bring I mean, in the national guard. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, I mean the, the, the thing is, like, we already do incentivize like zoning reform to an extent, but. We don't really have super strong carrots and sticks for for that. No, no, no mean, it's not political will right now. Yeah. yeah, I mean Obama tried to like you know do a couple of lawsuits out there, like and then they sued Westchester County or something like that. But other than that, I yeah, I mean also you need a you need a, a, a administration that really really goes to the to the to the mattresses on it. Part four, I think, is the most kind of. You know, uh, obvious thing for the show. It's about uh, decommodifying things by looking at structural systems which encourage land speculation, real estate speculation, and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that this is this is obviously great to hear being mm-hmm. talked about. And I think there's a lot of groups uh, nationally, like lefty groups, that are looking at ways to to sort of like 
um, look at the financialization of housing specifically, uh, ways that the tax code supports it, but also ways to help tamp down on the speculative aspects of the housing market specifically, especially in the single family home uh, area, and then the ways in which basically apartments are traded like pork bellies right now. And talking about like uh, trying to limit uh, uh, anonymous LLCs owning real estate. As oh, a, that as would a, be amazing. That would make my job a lot easier. <laughs> so what do people do with anonymous? Is this kind of like just spring shell companies? What do you avoid if you have an anonymous LLC like owning real estate? You don't actually avoid any taxes, right? Like, I mean, technically. Because usually, nothing is progressive. The yeah, progressive yeah. taxes, the more real estate you own, you so get there, higher and higher rates. So uh, just off the top of my head, like there are two things that an LLC will do, right? Um, one, it allows you to sort of, um, what's the word? Uh, disaggregate the ownership, right? So basically, if if you are a very large multifamily landlord and you don't want to be the target, you don't want to end up in any headlines, yeah. you know, you don't want to be Veritas, you don't want to look, you know, you don't want to be Donald Brand or whatever, it allows you to essentially be anonymous, right? Like most people won't know who they pay their 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 check to. And most of the time there's there's a there's some kind of inter- intermediary like a management company. The second part is that it allows for continuous ownership. Um, so this is especially especially important in places like um, in California or in Colorado where there are some property tax uh, inheritance uh, ad- advantages where as long as the ownership does not change 50% of the ownership does not change um, then there's no revaluation of the property. Mm. Um, and so in many cases, you'll have massive stock uh, housing portfolios where the ownership will only partially change over time, even though there's a, you know, there's cashing out, there's some like, you know, a uh, fail son inheritor or who wants to cash out, but nothing will ever get revalued because the entity, the LLC, actually never sold. Whereas, whereas in in my opinion, you should reassess buildings on like uh, maybe an hourly basis. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, just this, just integrate yeah. over the curve. The this, yeah, yeah, I mean, like so. I mean, the most famous example is that um, you know the current president's father, right, transferred the ownership of his portfolio of tens of thousands of apartments in New York City. Um, to his failed children, um, without ever changing the ownership. Yeah, yeah. And and the, and the former point that has huge ramifications for like people who want to organize tenants because yes. if you if you want to organize your uh, against your landlord, it is really hard for people with large corporate landlords to be able to even find out who their landlord is. Mm-hmm. And if there is any whiff of any, you know, conflict with the tenants, you know, you could go from having a landlord to suddenly like. Not like, you know, things get restructured and now you don't know who your landlord is. I mean, you talk about real estate being like it's a wild west of like just kind of one, sucking money out of tenants, two, laundering money through all sorts of things. I mean, Mm -hmm. just like just everything about real estate, it's not as nearly well run as something like the SEC would do for securities. You know, my ongoing joke, and I apologize if there are some decent people in the real estate industry. They're not. Um, but like my ongoing joke is that people in real estate are the like the bottom quartile of business school grads. The people who are the absolute <laughs> worst at business school end up in real estate because the it's a is the dumb guy business, right? Yeah. Like it's you build some housing uh, or some offices, and then you rent them out or 
you sell them to people. Like it's the dumb guy business, right? Like the other parts of business, finance, retail, you know, it takes some like actual like yeah, research and you know, tech. Like you actually have to like know how to do things and work, you know what I mean? But this is the dumb guy uh business, you know. Yeah, you go out it's kinda of like farming. You sow your seeds and like it's not like on average it's a proven moneymaker because uh-huh. you have to buy it. Like I think expected value is pretty close to a little bit over any kind of investment mm-hmm. but some people go bust and who cares about them they invest in the wrong places some people make a lot of money but you don't have to it's it is a passive income stream if yeah, it works yeah. no and i mean it's like the simplest business that there is out there right like if you really think about it yeah every other business you actually have to i don't know work for a living right yeah <laughs> owning apartments is not really working for a living right you're just a rentier capitalist you know and this talks about a lot of i think beautiful stuff in accounting talking about restructuring how de- uh, depreciation uh, factors into and it's like so much of advanced economics is about how depreciation affects measurements. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's really insane how much this comes up. Um, so I think there's a part here that may be of some interest to us. Um, it says something about exploring um, la- land <laughs> va- value uh, taxation. I love how I love how um, cute oh. that that the wording of that that section is. It's like a lot of these uh, sections are just very straightforward. This is like you know. You, you should you should just implement this policy, and yeah. then here it's explore land value taxation. Just exploring it. Let's 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 just, just take a look just, at this. Let's just think about this. It was popular. Uh, I'm just going to read it. Uh, popularized in America by Henry George uh, during the late 19th century, a universal tax on the inherently scarce resource of land, regardless of the improvements upon it, would incentivize a landowner to improve the land by building some new productive value on it while effectively punishing unproductive land use. I love that, like, you know, I just love the fact that, like, some Georgist at this think tank was just like, I know this makes no sense. (laughs) Henry Kramer's got a record says he's not a Georgist. I'm going to put this in here anyway. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> it's like, like it's just 100% like, yeah. luxury. But, but then again, if, if, if you were if you're working for like the Roosevelt Institute, would you tell people you're like a tanky like, secretly? Like, <laughs> well, I like at the end the last set, last sentence here. We recognize this type of radical reform is nearly impossible so politically, but the scale of the housing crisis nationally has prompted increased interest in land value tax across the political spectrum that we wish to continue. Which is just like, I it's it's. It's pretty fun that it's it's just out there. Everyone knows if you really want radical reform, mm-hmm. it's land reform. Do it, and it's funny that even the DSA mm-hmm. is like this isn't their main thing because land reform is the most radical thing you can do. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like uh, 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 Matty Matty Yiggs, uh, oh Matty, my uh, old Yiggles Yiggles said that. Um, um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just gonna start calling um, uh, zoning reform land reform. That yeah. way, it makes me sound like a leftist. But then some people push back, say like, "Well, land reform. It's not. It doesn't sound more leftist than entitlement reform. Mm-hmm. Instead, call it land welfare." Which is like that's something. <laughs> well, I like you know like my favorite part of like uh, progress on property, which I still haven't read the whole damn thing. But um, it's the like everyone works but the landlord, and it's the like it's the simplest way that I. Always I think it's actually explain, a mill like, quote. Oh, is it? The, in, oh no, the landlord makes money in his sleep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's like one of the just like simplest ways that I explain Georgism to people. Like everyone works. Yeah. Except for the guy who owns the land, <laughs> you know, or the person who owns the land and yeah. owns the house, you know. 
So let's 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 put this down right now and just say after this went out, everyone loved it. Uh, people were holding parades, and then uh, Liz Warren on her Twitter like immediately said, "This is fantastic," uh, mm-hmm. and I think that a lot of people saying. Uh, the Warren campaign is a campaign that is looking at practical, pragmatic, wonkish solutions that actually address things well. Her co-signing this so quickly is, I think, she is... Well, it, it seems to me, anyway, like an expansion of the housing policy that she had put forward in the first place. Yes. Right? Uh, she talked about building 3 million affordable housing units uh, nationally. Um, she, Big she, thing is uh, the housing trust fund throwing oh, yeah. 470 yeah, yeah. billion at it. I mean, that's just a, I mean, that's the kind of scale that we're talking about. Mind you, that's you know, that's over 10 years. So it's only 50 billion a year, which is just uh, like restoring what had been taken out by Reagan. But sure that would how, be like but, increasing the spending by like 500 times or something. Yeah, like yeah, that. yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying it's not. It's not a big, bold, progressive change here right, at yeah. all. I'm just like want to put it in. in sure. Yeah, yeah. And it, 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 mind you, 500 billion a year. Now we're talking real money. Yeah, that's yeah. the that's the defense budget, but like <laughs> you know, so this is like every citizen on average a hundred bucks a year. I mean, you can't do a ton of housing on that, but it's a start. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. I it, think it's going to be. I think like basically, you know, I mean, everybody knows, right? Like at this point, that Liz Warren, like I don't know who she has. Like it's like she decided to to you know how like the like the all those those Nazi um, those. Um, what do you call it? those Nazi physicists or whatever that we like? Oh, they, uh, like we locked up in like some lab. operation paperclip. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we just like made them part of like just do all the work for NASA. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the like, Warren campaigns is kidnapping all the housing wonks. And, yeah. I tell you, right? Like yeah. you just get the sense that like she must have like just like gotten every like basically crazy Hauser who's been like working on his dream plan forever. Uh, to come in and um, work in her policy lab uh, basement in Boston. So here's the thing. It's like I feel in a lot of ways, in a lot of different parts of the political spectrum, it's kind of like, okay, if you want kind of reform in different things, look, the further left you go. And Warren and Sanders, they're about the same on most things. And I think people... Well, are, you'll, you'll, you'll hear some uh, disagreement on that. But yes, they, they agree on a lot. I think they agree on a lot if you talk about maybe, you know, labor, you know, school, healthcare, mm-hmm. all sorts of things. You Wall talk, Street. Yeah. Wall Street, yeah. You talk about housing, though, and it really breaks my heart that we can't just agree that Sanders can't be as good as Warren here. It's like, it, well, Boston is he, It's not that he can't. It's just he has not been yet i think like i you know oh oh daddy bernie like you we 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 want him you know we want good things for him and we want him to have a good housing policy uh to come out of his uh policy shop here's the thing and i hate to say it but i wonder i really do wonder um if the fact that he is like a burlington vermont kind of guy right like that to him the housing crisis is just not like something that is as um you know not salient but as much of an emergency as something like medicare for all is you know i think it's i mean the fact is he has a good record of i think having rural low density housing solutions at work he did the burlington community land trust oh yeah i and mean this as is mayor a- of burlington he basically saved the Burlington waterfront and made it affordable for like I mean the housing affordable for people who are close to the Burlington to the Burlington um uh is it a ri- what's the river up there yeah, how yeah. dare you <laughs> you expect us to know the Burlington uh, I don't know anyway <laughs> yeah. the Burlington Jesus waterfront I, I would um, go yeah I mean I would go even farther and say that um I have a hard time seeing uh Bernie's campaign adopting any housing uh platform that is 
anywhere as uh, close to as radical as what his supporters want him to back because Mm -hmm. it actually would be politically toxic to the point that it would threaten his presidency if he was running as a socialist and talking about like expanding social housing that would be a really hard sell i mean that would really scare some people well you you said before like public housing is still like it is something that sets off the right wing i mean we had to change the name to social housing exactly Exactly. (laughs) that tells you something like that if you're talking about social versus public housing in europe it's like a completely different thing we just we just changed the name to social housing (laughs) over in the in the u.s yeah yeah meanwhile our president of the united states donald j drumpf uh has has recently (laughs) said that he celebrated homeowner money month you know home yeah. ownership month it's yeah, like this is disgusting wait, wait is, is that real society yeah it's like a real, real estate thing it's oh, that rules. a realtor yeah. thing yeah i'm sure the national association of realtors is all over yeah. that thing yeah. but it is kind of funny like if you talk about what is you know it is a different kind of thing if you talk about the new deal kind of liberalism that bernie supports this is the fdr programs of public housing is supporting kind of home ownership style housing it's not really like a berlin style housing where most people are renters well okay so the new deal itself was a very much a home ownership program like yes, there's no question like yeah i mean it, it was like a nearly i mean it was start the the public housing program started in the 1930s but it didn't really start kicking into gear until the truman administration uh when the fair when the the housing act of 1949 passed um and that created 1.8 million housing public housing units throughout the country and honestly that's where we got all of the famous famous public housing projects that people you know think about like Pruitt Igbo and Cabrini Green and Robert Taylor Holmes we also got the nearly 150,000 public housing units in New York City that are still affordable to this day to most of the underclass and working class in New York City is where we got the tens of thousands of units in Washington, D.C., and in Baltimore, and in Atlanta, and in Nashville, and in Houston, um, and in Los Angeles, where most of the poor working class still live in those cities. Like, Mm. I mean, whatever. I mean, this is not the platform for my rant about public housing. Yeah. But I'm just saying that there is there were some advantages to the system as well. You know, it, it that did, we need to it did and continues to, a lot to bring of it back. Even with all the things uh, setting it up for failure. Mm-hmm. And I think it was. Let's put it out segregated on bad land mm-hmm. and uh, make it so it is badly maintained and only has people who are marginalized by society. You're not going to succeed with that. And it still did yeah. a lot of good. I mean, some things like Prodigo, I think, are you know brought up as like failures for everything. But it's, yeah. it's Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. I th- you know, obviously now with this other sort of system or this idea around social housing is that you're not going to have those things anymore. You're not going to have that isolated, concentrated poverty where folks don't have jobs, don't have resources. You're going to have mixed income communities where like people who, you know, whatever, planners, uh, their kids will play with kids of janitors. Like that's the idea anyway, right? The folks who are working on uh, this uh, uh, data for progress, they're definitely trying to like sell this paper to like the Warren campaign, the Sanders campaign, or whoever's running for president. And I, I mean, even they're trying to push Warren uh, to, so to Bernie's credit, he at least talks about like tenant protections and rent control. Whereas I don't, if I, unless I'm mistaken, I don't think Warren's uh, housing policy has anything about like rent control. No. 
Yeah, so I think this would even be, uh, you know, trying to push her to the left. There's a lot more in this in this paper yeah. than, than her housing policy, yeah. and mm-hmm. I hope she adopts every single part of it, especially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she should just like put her name on it and just say this is the this is the oh. Betty Warren um, or Betsy Warren plan. I mean, um, I, I hope... we should talk about some of the other candidates. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's quickly. Thoughts. I just hope that her. You know, saying this is great doesn't lick the cookie and say that Sanders has to say, no, that is cooties. I don't like that. Oh, I hate, I mean, I don't think, whatever, like, interleft fighting is really stupid. Yeah, like, especially right. at this stage of the campaign, we yeah. should just be growing the left. That's it. Yeah. I, I, th- I think if, if both of them can adopt this uh, paper as a great thing. So mm-hmm. to, to, I don't really follow every, I just know that the people I follow who are like, yes, cash vouchers for everybody, they love like Mayor Pete and stuff. Mayor Pete is a bad record on like, on housing, right? Yeah, sort of. So it's a it's a complicated thing. So how about this? I I, I lived for a time in in, in Detroit, and I, I spent a lot of time in the Midwest. I actually went to South Bend once as well, and I it's very tough to talk about what um, what happened under Mayor Pete's administration without fully understanding what it means to have a empty house next to you. Right. Um, in one of the houses I live, I, I stayed in, in in Detroit. There was a burned down house next door. Right. No one knew who owned that house. There was never anything happening with the house, and the city wouldn't take it down at the time. Right. And so that burned down house would have sometimes like folks who were like you know drug users who would camp out inside of it. There'd be like um, um, random uh, stray animals um, who would uh, end up taking shelter in the place. It became like sort of a site for um, uh, roaches and rats and that kind of thing, right? But we couldn't do anything about it, right? Because we didn't own the house. Yeah. And so under Mayor Pete's administration, they made a, a plan or a goal to take down a hundred... Uh, sorry, a thousand houses in a thousand days. That was their plan or whatever, right? Um, because uh, South Bend, like nearly every other Midwest city, had a pretty huge home vacancy problem, right? Abandoned houses mostly. In that process, at least at the beginning of the process, they ended up taking down a bunch of houses that working class black people owned in 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 um, in South Bend. Mind you, they didn't live in them, but they were planning on fixing them up. They were trying to keep up with the payments. Uh, maybe they had fallen behind on the taxes. And not, Fill in the blank. And not to be you know too much of always on the same thing, the fact that people are foreclosed upon upon paying taxes on. A modest home on near valueless land is a, is is an incredibly regressive thing. It's that is, it's, it's, it's a crime against. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm, it's horrible. And these are working class black people. I mean, I'm pe- yeah. talking about people who are making ten, twelve dollars an hour, who just happen to ha- own like an, a house that their mom owned or their grandma owned. If your land's worth zero, to keep up you with should the pay taxes, zero. You know, <laughs> like and they were just a- trying to keep up with the taxes. They're yeah. trying to keep up with the homes, right? And like they couldn't yeah. afford to have a fancy security system. They couldn't afford to like fa- like you have a very fancy way to board the place up, right? Yeah. And so they tore down a bunch of those people's houses. I think I can't remember what the BuzzFeed story said was the estimate of number of houses that it got it ended up but around the around the time when they got to two three hundred houses they decided to slow down the process slow down the the program and try to target mostly the houses that were owned by out of town like investors or whatever who had just bought up you know tens hundreds of houses at once basically in, yeah. in south bend and kind of focus on those for the demolitions and then offer more opportunities for uh renovations like grants to actually renovate the houses to secure the homes um, uh, improve the lots. I think it's a mixed bag. 
uh, I think a lot of people who have been talking about this have been trying to look for ways to like kind of like crap on on Mayor Pete about this. I'll just say that like he he screwed up, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I will also say that like an empty house is a very 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 it's a real problem. Yeah, I mean it's 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 very. I think looking at you can look at ways to try to increase investment back into the core to stop vacancies because they are they they absolutely destroy community. Yeah, I think I think the thing is like the specifics of that story I think are probably like again a mixed bag. However, the idea behind the story, or at least the sort of the theme, is very important, which is that you know Mayor Pete has a straight-up McKinsey's, you know, uh, consultant-class approach to a lot of problems. And he does not realize that there are human costs um, until way, way deep into having already instituted his, you know, whatever, uh, Fordism uh, solution, you know? I mean, he looks at the what knobs we have, he pulls the right lever working within the system we have, and if you if you have an incredibly regressive system of people owning houses on marginal land like this, mm-hmm. it means that you dispossess people from a modest house, foreclose on them, and then tear their house down. Yeah, but I mean, I think this is like exactly the kind of like thinking that hopefully, like, f- folks on the left and the Democratic Party are trying to get away from, right? We're trying to get away from like uh, managerial class kind of liberalism where you know we bring in all of the harvard phds and and chicago school phds who then tell us this is the right solution and we end up in like you know robert mcnamara's you know um a bombing plan right like like just thinking about it as a more humanistic actual solution and problem that requires the community buy-in and the fact that processes sometimes have to slow down in order to fully understand the impact on humans you know? a, a good student a lot of what you do and a lot of people have mocked mayor pete for being a good student i think that's absolutely fair mm-hmm. if you if you go through systems and always get straight a's <laughs> uh something is wrong with you uh and like i think the system is if the world is messy you you change the model so you know the world matches your model and then you just kind of make it fit and you know that is actually one of the weird things or not the weird things like the whatever i'll i'll, I'll be fine with anybody obviously but i you know i i wonder about somebody who's you know never gotten a B in his life you know that is something you really do want to like wonder about you know anyway all right that's mayor pete uh we should talk about some of the other folks who are who are in this housing conversation so uh yeah what's uh what, what's what's the brief well, summary so, like, uh, because we do need to wrap julian, up yeah for sure julian castro uh you know former hud secretary uh who i think is just failing upwards i'm i'm, I'm from texas uh he used to be mayor of san antonio uh, people in Texas have been waiting for him to run for a statewide office forever. Um, him and his brother have never done it. They're just straight up, like, whatever. Anyway, I have strong feelings about Juan, Julian Castro. However, his housing plan apparently appears to be pretty good. Um, in practice, how much has the HUD been run differently with Ben Carson versus Julian Castro? Um, it's been um, basically hollowed out. Um, so he has been successful in hauling it out. Yeah, so there. I mean, the two biggest things that HUD does 
um, is on one side is just funding programs. Um, and they've done every single thing to try to get people to not qualify for programs um, and to try to kick out people who already live in public housing. And then on the second side is enforcement um, of especially Fair Housing Act um, violations. Uh, and they're supposed to be uh, affirmatively furthering fair housing. Uh, that's been completely shut down, essentially shut down. The Office of Civil Rights, I don't even think it still exists um, in, uh, in in HUD. I mean, that, that place, holy crap. I mean, goodness gracious. You That's know? kind of the trend with Trump's administration is if it's something that takes a lot of work to change, they're too incompetent to change it. But if it's just kind of like stop doing stuff, they'll just, okay, yeah, let's stop yeah, staffing they, this. They stop. They stopped enforcing essentially fair housing law, and like mind you, there are a bunch of very nice you know liberals out on the on the coasts who absolutely love that aspect of the Trump administration. You know the Westchester counties and and uh, Newton, Massachusetts of the world absolutely love the fact that they they no longer have to build affordable housing. You know, uh, well, what's what's the uh, pocket-sized uh, summary of uh, Kamala? Of other- well, so Kamala has a renter's tax credit uh, that would be paid out monthly. Um, so it's essentially it's a refundable tax credit um, that would be based on your you know means tested based on your income. It would have a trapezoid um, um, system. Yeah. Like a, not not to be confused with her other tax credit <laughs> proposal. <laughs> now she loves her tax credits, man. Yeah. Um, so basically, it's like you know if you're a working person or whatever, um, you would get you know whatever fifty to maybe three hundred dollars a month back. Um, on your paycheck, uh, that you would then you could then use to um, to to make housing more affordable. Uh, mind you, there are many ways in which that's going to be screwed up. One by the fact that it's most likely going to be captured by the landlord um, by creating um, a backdoor inflation, um, and then two the fact that you know a, a renter's tax credit is not exactly real support for renters. But anyway, I just. I don't know. It seems like a very, like, it's the kind of thing that, like, would have come out of the Clinton administration in 1994, you know, or 1996, yeah. I guess. I, I think know? one thing that uh, doesn't really get captured by people, proponents of things like uh, tax credits is that they say it's really low overhead to just give people money, but uh, they don't really think about how, like, half of that money is just going to be captured by the employer or captured by the landlord. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, the thing about tax credits is that tax expenditures are a politically viable way to get, like, essentially government spending to be approved, right? Because it's money that people were going to pay to the government that they no longer have to pay the government. So it looks like a tax cut um, to the to uh, the Republicans, right? Like, I mean, in their heads, it, it looks like a tax cut, right? Um, but it's such a, I mean, it's just such, such a, like, if something it's makes, like giving up, basically. If if something makes everyone happy, there must be something deeply wrong with it. Yeah, but it's the kind of thing that, like, you know, it makes you think that, like, are we giving up? It's like yeah. 2019. Like, you know what I mean? You were running for president in, like, 2019, 2020. Yeah. Like, this is not the 90s anymore. Like, you know what I mean? Like, exactly. we're not living in the post-Soviet era. Like, you know? Think, we can actually just give people money straight up without having to couch it under this tax credit thing. I think it's dis- I think it's disappointing to us who, I think, live in the world and kind of are really annoyed by it. But it's worth saying most people don't wake up in the morning angry tax credits you know it's like most people don't even think about it or understand it you know yeah, like, yeah i mean they don't get it until the end of the year when they get their mortgage interest tax deduction and their student loan tax deduction and they get their child care tax deduction you know it's like it's just a never-ending tax expenditure program then part of the reason why the warren campaign i think has done so well on these policies is that she hasn't seen a tax credit she loves yet 
right? Like, (laughs) everything is just a straight-up program, right? It's a straight-up, like... She's talking about changing structural things. (laughs) Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, she's not just, like, trying to piggyback off of uh, an existing existing program. I think Cory Booker has a tax credit as well. Um, He's kind of tried to synthesize the Warren and Kamala Harris's um, plans, from what I can tell. Yeah, I think he has a lot more racial equity stuff, like, um, rolled rolled into it as well. Um, what's the other thing? There was this one of the candidates that has like a, um, um, was it, was it rural housing or like fixing housing thing where it's like, we're going to give jobs by having people build and, and, and fix housing and making it jobs climate, guarantee for climate, uh, climate, climate ready. Huh. Um, but yeah, anyway, so there's that Jay Ensley actually has a green new deal has a housing proportion in it. Cool. So, okay. So I need to uh, hop off mic and prepare for recording my show in which I analyze the movie Cocktail. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm actually getting anxious to, to analyze that. So final thoughts. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think you, you should definitely read this paper. Like this Homes for All, Data for Progress uh, paper, I think is, you know, that is the housing policy, policy to end all housing policies. And then the next thing is like as this like 2020 campaign keeps going, um, it's pretty obvious that, you know, one candidate is like really good on this stuff, but we need to have like a broad consensus around some of the ideas in this paper. And uh, I would definitely love to see uh, these ideas get like focused into how they can be applied in California. Yeah. So thank you so much, uh, Ollie and uh, Ethan, for, for being here today. It's been it's been, it's been good. Yeah, thanks for having me back. It'll be a long campaign season, so yeah. we'll have more to talk about, hopefully. Peace. Yeah, I can't wait for that Tim Ryan plan. <laughs> We have been talking to Ace and NDI and Ollie Zoo all about the Democratic candidates' housing, the Data for Progress paper, and much more. This show and all previous episodes can be found on the website, seethecat.org. This is a presentation of KZSU, Stanford 